When it comes to Mexico, its food, music, and tradition may be familiar to many around the world. Yet the country's own history has done a lot to obscure its roots. Before the modern age, the era of conquest, there was a rich culture that still exists. It seems hidden, but it is very much alive. Today on the America's Now podcast, we'll talk about all the native languages spoken in one of the most populated cities in the world. Hi, everyone. I'm Elaine Reyes in Washington, D.C., and this is the America's Now podcast. Today, we are talking with Mexico-based correspondent Alistair Baverstock, who is currently in Mexico City. Al, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you for having me, Elaine. So a lot to get to here. Uh, Mexico at one time was the epicenter of two empires, the Mayans and the Aztecs. And you can see a lot of that within the local traditions and culture. But there are more than 50 native tongues spoken around the country. And I found that astounding, 50. So how many of those can you find just in Mexico City? Well, in Mexico City, you can find all of them. Uh, this is a, a country, which, a capital at least, which has a, across the history of Mexico, at least since uh, the, the country's independence, has been this, the, the economic center in many ways, the cultural center. And as a result, people from across the country migrate to this city to, uh, to, um, to try and get ahead in life. In fact, uh, the, the word here in Mexico, Chilango, which means now a, a, a Mexico City native, originally comes from the Nahuatl, uh, which is the Aztec language. As you mentioned, there's more than 50 languages here. The Chilango originally meant someone who comes, who migrates, a Mexican from outside, from somewhere within the Republic, who migrates to Mexico City. And obviously there, there are so many Chilangos. The, the population of this city has, having been from around 4 million at the turn of the century, is now more than uh, 24 million. So the term Chilango now is a generic term for a native of Mexico City, whether you were born here or not. This is a, a city which is uh, attracts people from across Mexico, attracts people from across the world as a cosmopolitan and metropolitan and economic center. And as a result, with migration from across Mexico, you can find many of those languages. But that's one of the problems which we covered in our story is that when people move from outside of Mexico City, they move from their indigenous homelands, being from wherever that, that might be across the country, and they come to Mexico City, those languages are lost. You know, you, uh, you travel to a lot of places in, in the heartlands, the indigenous heartlands of Mexico, be it Maya, be it Nahuatl, be it Zapotec, Olmec, whatever. And often you'll go to rural places where Spanish isn't even spoken. Yet when they come to Mexico City, Spanish generally is, while there are many languages here, Spanish is the only language spoken. And people who migrate to this city without speaking Spanish are looked down upon many, many ways. And that's a great concern for indigenous communities who feel that their culture is being lost. Right, they have to uh, assimilate, acclimate, and then as a result they stop using their language. So probably safe to say that thousands, really millions, speak all of these different languages. 
Can they read and write as well? And are these languages taught in schools there? The languages are certainly not taught in schools here. The only way you'll pick up any semblance of indigenous languages going to those communities. Um, there has been reform in schools in recent years in which classes can now be given in indigenous languages, particularly in states like Oaxaca and Chiapas, where there are large indigenous populations there. But in terms of if you want to if you want to go and pick up Zapotec, the only way to do it is to go down and live in the mountains in Oaxaca where where it's spoken. Well, is there any interest among younger people to want to learn uh, these languages? And then what about the younger people who come from those areas into uh, the big cities? Do they want to hang on to their language? Well, that's a, that's a really important point is what happens here is that those original Chilangos, those people who are coming from outside to live in Mexico City, once their children are born here, they will intentionally not speak to them in their original language. They will speak to them in Spanish specifically, and that's seen as a way to give these kids, these new generations, a better way of fitting in to the culture of Mexico City. They're no longer in their indigenous communities. They are now in Mexico City, and their parents think, well, if they want to get ahead, the best thing, if they want to live normal and successful lives, the best thing is that they can do is for to have them completely forget any semblance of indigenous culture because of the way it's so frowned upon. One of the really important uh, figures from this piece that we covered was that when it comes to indigenous uh, peoples, the indigenous population in Mexico is, it's, it's about 20 to 22% of the population. Yet when it comes to that indigenous population, 54% of them, more than half, live in urban areas. They don't anymore live in those rural mountainous or, or rural indigenous communities. They are moving to the cities. And as a result, when those children are born, those, those subsequent generations, they're not learning any of this indigenous culture. But we have seen also that generations further down the line, perhaps second, third or fourth generation, the children of those first uh, wave, the, the, the grandchildren of that, of that first wave of immigrants, are once again beginning to take an interest in that indigenous culture where they do originally come from. They'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm from my parent, my grandparents and I have still family in the Sierra Negra of Puebla, where they speak Nahuatl specifically, and they will go to those communities, meet with their distant cousins and attempt to relearn this culture that they feel has been lost as a result of this, I suppose you could call it a, a form of sort of uh, ethnic racism, which exists within Mexican society. Well, you touched on this a short time ago um, about the future of these languages. What does the law say or what is the government doing in terms of preserving these ancient languages in both urban and the rural areas? When it comes to urban areas, there's not a great deal being done to actually preserve these languages. We've seen indigenous universities spring up, but those are publicly funded institutions, but also which depend heavily on money from from donations from outside, where they specifically try to bring in generations who are moving to these cities, bring them into these institutions and have them document and sh and share the, that culture with the wider community within that institution. There's a very good example 
you know, here in Mexico City in, in Iztapalapa in one of the most densely populated and working class areas of this city where this institution has popped up. And they try to recreate dishes that are traditionally from these areas, give classes in these, in these languages. And when it comes to rural areas, well, it's really left down to the communities. A big problem in Mexico is the marginalization and often just how much these rural areas are left to their own devices by the government. So there isn't a great deal of funding when it comes to preservation of, 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 the, of these cultures outside of the major urban areas. But there is a very interesting nuance in Mexican law, in the Mexican constitution, actually, which allows for something called usos y costumbres, which is a way of saying traditional or indigenous traditions and communities' ways of self-governance, which predate the Mexican Republic, which predate the Spanish conquest, which happened in the 16th century. And so there are towns here which have there, uh, there aren't particularly many of them who have rejected any form of federal government when it comes to Mexico and returned instead to usos y costumbres. And that is something which is a growing movement as well. There's a particularly good example in the state of Michoacán in a town called Cheran, which was obviously Michoacán is a state with a lot of problems when it comes to narco-trafficking. And because of the very rich forests around there, there was a great deal of illegal and clandestine logging going on. So when the local community went to their government, the, the local officials, to say, we, we want you to put an end to this, they found out that the local officials were actually corrupted by organized crime and were involved in the process itself. So, you know, in their own uh, very indigenous and the, the people in Michoacan are extremely uh, brave people, you know, you, you don't want to get on the wrong side of them. <laughs> They took the matter into their own hands, kicked out the local government, kicked out the local police and set, you know, this was about 15 years ago, set set up their own indigenous council, their own indigenous uh, government, according to Usos y Costumbres, and it still continues to be that way today. So there is a great deal of indigenous pride here in Mexico in, in the heritage, but often you have to look a bit harder to find it. Well, are... Are we seeing more of this sprinkling up within social media or music, um, pop culture, literature? I mean, these are some other ways to preserve language and culture. And you did mention that uh, this younger generation has expressed an interest. Uh, are we seeing any of that as well? well? I think when it comes to Mexican culture and music and, and food and everything, so much of it comes down to that heritage. But it's a heritage which is not necessarily openly indigenous. I mean, if you look at Mexican food, it's, you know, corn, it's based on corn and chilies. And that is, and th those are foodstuffs and staples which have been in this country since people first arrived here. So, and it, when it comes to Mexican music, you know, Mexican music, things like mariachi and, uh, and cumbia and music like this has a very great deal of cultural influence from a long time back. So in terms of the resurrection of actual indigenous activities or indigenous sounds or indigenous food, I think it's already here. The thing is that, that, that there's this sort of cultural racism around it that doesn't let it openly be seen as uh, indigenous. I mean, there are other examples of indigenous traditions such as sports, which are 
growing in popularity. There's one in particular called Ulama. If you've ever visited a Mexican archaeological site, be it Teotihuacan or Chichen Itza or anywhere around Mexico, you will always find these ball courts where the, this sport seems to have permeated throughout Maya, Olmec, Nahuatl uh, cultures in which large balls weighing up to you know three or four kilos made of uh, rubber, which was taken from the Mayan jungles, was formed into a ball. And then this game in which you, you, it's like a sort of a tennis match in which the ball goes back and forth between teams, but it can only be hit, it can only be returned, you can only touch the ball using your hips. This is a game which has permeated throughout Mexican culture over the past millennia and is now in Mexico City being seen as a bit of a lifeline in the more working class areas for resurrection of this culture and more than anything to help at-risk youth who would otherwise be distracted perhaps by drugs or criminal activity to to take this sort of social group, play this game, and in that way feel a sense of community to which they feel they belong, that they exclusively belong as descendants of the Aztecs, to give themselves a feeling of identity in which they can find a source of pride. And that is being, that's a very successful program here in Mexico City, but it's one which is, you know, this game being millennia old has only sparked up in the past five or so years. Para mí es una tristeza que exista la discriminación. So in 2018, the award-winning movie Roma portrayed actress Yalitza Aparicio speaking in the mixed tech language. Did that movie give value and recognition to native tongues? It's a great question. Roma in Mexico was a very uh, divisive movie. I, I think everyone enjoyed the movie, but what it it brought out a lot of ugliness as well when it came to social division, division between classes and division between ethnicities here in Mexico. Uh, the the Mixtecs are from Oaxaca in the south of the country and they are from very rural mountain areas. So it's not a culture or a, a language which is often heard spoken at all uh, within this country. And Yalitza Paricio became a, a standard bearer in many ways for indigenous people throughout Mexico. And given this sort of cultural racism that we do see here in Mexico, she was both adulated and despised, you know, on, on national television networks, we saw, you know, people um, basically going, uh, painting their faces, uh, darker shades of color, you know, putting on fake noses uh, in order to portray caricatures of her on, on TV comedy shows. That was uh, something which sparked a great deal of ire. And certainly the, the reaction we saw from the United States when she appeared at the Oscars, you know, looking fantastic. You know, the Americans and the American audiences were far more uh, accepting and admiring of her than, than the people were in Mexico. So while she had to go through a lot of that, it also brought to light and what, what Roma did, really, you know, if, if you look at the, the plot of the story, it's, you know, this is the difference between the family she cares for and where she's from and how at the end, certainly the message that I took from it. And, you know, I, I live blocks from the, 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 the Roma neighborhood is that there is this permeating social separation in Mexico in which despite saving the boy's life at the end of it, she remains uh, an entity apart 
not really accepted. And that it's in, at the end, it was a very good allegory for the the state of social affairs when it comes to indigenous people in Mexico. So more than anything, I think Roma served to highlight exactly what happens in the 1970s, 1980s, and what happens today hasn't changed very much at all. Right. I was I was going to say not to stay too long in the movie, but, uh, you know, the movie was set in the 1970s and it sounds like not much has changed in terms of that if she is getting that kind of reaction in Mexico. Um, so beyond culture, though, uh, turning to politics, we've seen other countries who sort of are experiencing uh, the same dynamics. Bolivia, for example, with a lot of indigenous representation, though, in Congress and the government. So you see that. Uh, and we just saw in Ecuador how an indigenous candidate almost made it to the final ballot. So on a different front, some progress. How does that, though, compare to Mexico? Well, it's, it's fairly similar. Mexico has had only one indigenous president. That's the, the famous Benito Juarez, who was president in around the 1870s, 1880s. He fought off a, a second imperial a little-known imperial domination by the French this time around. He was the one who eventually defeated Emperor Maximilian. But since then, there haven't been any indigenous presidents of the country. And when it comes to the country's politics, indigenous people are still relatively marginalised and excluded from the country's politics here. That that was a long time ago. Um, any, do you see that shifting or changing anytime soon? Not particularly, no. Uh, we've certainly seen during this, uh, the previous presidential cycle, and here in Mexico, we have midterm elections coming up in June. There aren't many Indigenous candidates, and those Indigenous communities, when it comes to campaigning, whenever you go to report in, in and, and visit these communities in, in Mexico, wherever you go in the rural areas, they all tell you the same thing. The politicians arrive here a month before the election, they ask us to vote for them, they make their promises, and then they go away and life remains the same. Was there one big takeaway from you uh, while researching and, and covering and putting this story together that has stayed with you, if there is one thing that you would like to share with everyone? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, I suppose one thing that I really enjoyed seeing was indigenous pride. And that's something you saw when these groups got together to practice, you know, their Aztec dances, their Ulama ball game. It's something that you don't really see. If, if you ask a Mexican, what is your ethnic heritage? They'll say, oh, I'm from Guadalajara or I'm from Mexico City. And if they have European blood, they will know exactly which town, exactly where, where their ancestors are from. But if you ask them about the Mexican side, oh, Oh, so, so your grandmother, she spoke Nahuatl. Where was she from? And the answer would be, you know, normally, who knows? Somewhere somewhere that wasn't here. And to see that Indigenous pride and what they said that Indigenous pride, if it was more taken notice of in Mexico, could do for this country socially and their beliefs and, and their pride in, in, in where they came from and actively going back and seeking out those roots was a real surprise for me, something I had uh, never experienced before reporting in Mexico for eight years. Oh, it's fascinating stuff. And it was uh, 
if everyone gets a chance. It was a beautifully shot story. The pictures are just gorgeous. Uh, Alistair Baverstock, thank you so much for being with us today. And thank you so much for joining us. And join us next week for another edition of the America's Now podcast. To listen to the first full season of the America's Now podcast, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just search for America's Now CGTN America. Our executive producer is Jose Velasquez. Our sound editor is Caroline Allnut. And our copy editor is Joe Zarenko. The head of the Features Unit is Umberto Duran. And I am Elaine Reyes in Washington, D.C.